Amen. How many of you are excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Psalm chapter 68, verse 4? Actually, you're going to be mad at me. Can we stand for the reading of God's word? (laughs) Have you sitting and standing down? I mean, sitting and standing up. It's going to feel like Catholic mass. (laughs) Some of y'all got that. This has kind of been the theme scripture that our pastor has been speaking on and our other pastors for this series. How many of you have been enjoying this series on family? And it says, sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, a defender of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious will dwell in a dry land. Amen. You may be seated. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to bring the word this morning. And because I have so much to say in such a short period of time, I'm going to jump right into the word. Amen. This morning, I want to stay in this vein of family. And we're going to be in the book of Malachi this morning, but before. Before we get there, I just kind of want to lay a foundation. Recently, the other day, I was having a conversation with my wife, and I was telling her that, you know, we're trying to have a child. And I would appreciate, as a church family, you you keep us in your prayers. We just walked through the pain of a miscarriage, and uh, but we we uh, know that the Lord is good, Amen. And uh, but I was telling her that I'm just, you know, just. Becoming more and more aware, the more I understand the role of family, I'm becoming more and more aware that my decisions that I'm making now are affecting my unborn children and my grandchildren. How many know that's true? It's a sobering thought. I told this story in the earlier services, and I I may have told this story before, but I remember being about 18 or 19, and I was at a conference in Florida. I really felt like the Lord directed me to go to a conference in Florida. And there was a, a minister there, and uh, he has a very strong prophetic gift on his life. And he called me out. He had never met me, and he, he called me out. And um, while he was prophesying to me, he said, there's a woman four generations back who opened the door for you. I thought, who's he talking about, you know? I get home and, you know, I'm talking to my grandpa and he says, that's, that's nanny. You know, my grandfather always talks about the grandmother who raised him. She was the, like the real first Christian in our family. And while the man was prophesying to me, he says, he goes, you're walking in an inheritance that she prayed for. And, you know, in the age that we're living in, it's, it's, it's becoming more of a challenge to even think and live for a day that you can't see. But how many of you know that it's important how we live our lives, not just for us, not just for, but for our, our, our children and our grandchildren. And, you know, in Genesis chapter 22, just kind of laying a foundation, check with me. Verse 17 through 18, listen to what God says to Abraham. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven 
and as a sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. His descendants. Amen. His family. Someone say family. God always changes the world with family. That's the only way he works. Out of Abraham came Israel. And although Israel was made up of 12 tribes, God saw the nation of Israel as his children. Out of Israel came the church, which is you and me. And God sees us as his children. As a matter of fact, how many know it's not just a cliche that when we come to church, we greet each other. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. You know, and I know sometimes that can become kind of churchy, but we forget that we literally all through the regeneration and birth of the Holy Spirit, we have all received the DNA of God and we are literally brothers and sisters in the Lord. God only does things through family. My friend told me this one time, he says, if God was building anything other than a family, he wouldn't call himself father. So many people know him as God, but don't know him as father. Amen. And just like Abraham, it starts, you know, you have Abraham and Sarah. You know, sometimes we focus just on Abraham, but how many know Sarah was a huge part of the favor that was on Abraham? Just felt my spirit. I wrote this down. Just felt like I need to say this, even within this series, that we need to understand, even as men, that the favor that's on our life is not just because of us, but that our wives bring favor to us. The Bible says a man that finds a wife finds favor with the Lord. Amen. I remember before I got married, a man told me, a minister, he says, listen, he says, when you get married, you're going to see things increase on you. And I thought, okay, that's cool. Like, I didn't know what, I mean, I don't know. You know, like I, I believed him, but I, I don't know. You know, when I got married, I, I noticed there was an increase on my life because she brought favor to me. And here's the other reason what I've realized is that once you first, you know, when you're single, there's a calling and all that, and God honors that. But when you come together, then it's no longer just about you. It's about you, you together. Then more than that, it's about now you're building something that's going to be passed on to your children and grandchildren. So when you come together, things start to increase because the Lord is starting to build your legacy. So it's like a natural progression. And so the Lord comes to, to, to Abraham and to Sarah, and he promises them a child, and then they have Isaac. Then out of Isaac comes Jacob, and at the, 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 for, at the fourth generation, Jacob has 12 sons that literally becomes a nation. I heard my grandpa say this one time, and I'm starting to believe it. He said, you know, spiritually and naturally, if we could ever get four generations to come into synergy, we could change a nation. I believe that in the natural and the spiritual. Imagine if within the church, four generations or three generations at a time could come into synergy where we successfully pass on our anointing, our mantles and our gifts to our children. God, because how many know that God only thinks in terms of family and not that he thinks multi-generational. Someone say, amen. Just building a case here. Unfortunately, though, as, as amazing as America is and as amazing as the West, ha, what the West has given the world, our society 
is among the most individualistic of societies. In other words, so much of the focus is on self. How many know that's true? And there's nothing wrong with focusing on the potential of self and maximizing your potential. But how many know that's not the complete picture? Because it's not just about me. It's not just about you. Amen. What God has on your life is actually not even for you. Your gift isn't for you. Right? And it's important to maximize the potential of self, but it's equally important to not live just for self. And we're living in a time where self is becoming the focus. And, you know, when the Bible's being written, how many know it's an Eastern book? Israel always thinks collectively. Israel was composed of tribes. Families were important. I mean, some of you come, maybe you come from your, or your family comes from cultures. You know, you hear it all the time that, uh, are more family oriented than Americans. How many of you, you know, you hear that, right? People come from other countries and they seem to have more of a family uh, dynamic. Am I making sense? And unfortunately, I think that the enemy right now is devouring families in America. I think it's for two reasons. I think, I think obviously there's a spiritual attack. Would you agree with that? I believe that because if you can destroy families, you can destroy children. If you can destroy children, then what happens is this is, is dysfunction and bad, you know, crazy thinking. And they're passed on from generation to generation. And so the enemy knows what he's doing. The other thing, though, I think we're facing is we're facing an onslaught of cultural thinking that's beginning to make its way in the church. Come on, let me, can I, can I just, are you with me? Are you tracking? I'm just building my case this morning. We're facing uh, secularism, postmodernism, and to be honest with you, just straight up sinful thinking that's beginning to permeate the church. That's affecting our families. Let's just start with abortion. Do you know that since Roe versus Wade was overturned, more than 60 million babies have been aborted? Just think about that for a second. 60 million. That's six Holocaust in our lifetime. Now, what I'm about to say, this is very sensitive. And I'm, when I talk, we're going to talk a little bit about this today. I'm going to do this with tenderness. But the divorce rates are skyrocketing, not only in our country, but in the church. But here's the thing. We have to create categories. Because there are divorces that are legitimate. There are divorces... Every situation is different. There are people, there is, you know, adultery and unfaithfulness and there's rightful divorce. You know, there are, there are people who are escape abusive situations. You know, I believe, I believe that God is not for divorce just for divorce's sake, but there are circumstances that are beyond your control. Amen. Some of, some of you may, unfortunately, maybe your spouse just left you one day and there's nothing you could do about it. That's not what I'm talking about today necessarily. But the divorce rate is climbing in, in America, not just America, but in the church. And many times it's over just people are just deciding they don't want to be married anymore. And I, and I address this with tenderness, but it, it also has to be talked about. Because culture will say this, you know, happiness can become an idol. See, I believe God does want us happy. And I I believe God does want us to have joy. But I believe that we actually find ultimate fulfillment when we do things God's way. 
But sometimes what we want to do is we want to, we want to God to fit into our way of thinking, to justify our decisions and, and ways of viewing. It. And unfortunately, the way that culture is viewing marriage is, is beginning to seep into the church. Single parenting is on the rise. And this is no attack on single parents. It's just an indication of a bigger problem. Young people are, are, are starting to marry less. And, they, and, and actually, young people are actually starting to make decisions not to have children. Amen? Let me read you a few statistics. It says that the share of U.S. children living with unmarried a parent has more than doubled since 1968. Some statistics say one in four. The, most, the more accurate numbers are one in three. Think about that. Altogether, at least 24 million children are living with unmarried parents. And in in an article, the author who who studied younger people, which are millennials. And by the way, way, when we talk about millennials, millennials aren't aren't kids anymore. I'm a millennial. I'm almost 30. Right? Millennials of our, you know, we're talking about millennials and there's a whole other young generation that's coming behind them. Millennials are, they're not coming. They're already here. Amen? You know, people are, it's funny because churches are just catching up to getting a passion for reaching millennials and they're already grown. (laughs) There's a whole nother young generation that's coming up. And and if the, if these problems are being seen in millennials, trust me, they're only going to multiply in the generations that come behind them unless we become, you know, unless we start to address this. Amen. This is what the, the author of this study writes. In the long run, with the passing of the older generations, we are heading into an age when marriage will no longer be the institution that a majority of adults live in. In the future, the author, the author of this study is predicting that the gap between married and non-married young adults will most likely continue to grow. One reason, listen to this, may... may one reason many will never tie the knot is the, is the number who have seen or lived through the trauma caused by divorce. Hester said, we live in a, and also here's another contributing factor. We live in a career driven society and everything's about make more and be more. And that's another thing that's taken place. And I just want to address this very quickly. Is that in a culture that. There's nothing wrong with success. How many know that's true? But in a culture where success can be idolized, children are then seen as a hindrance rather than a blessing. And it's backwards, actually, because the Bible says be fruitful and multiply. Children are actually a blessing to carry on our legacy. Amen. But, I mean, in some of you, you know what I'm talking about. You're at work. You hear the way people talk now about children and families. And I understand preparing and going to college and waiting till the right time. I didn't get married till I was 26. Thank God for that. It took me that long to grow up, okay? I mean, no, boys grow up slow, okay? We grow, it takes us. But here's the thing. Is that when you have young people who are approaching their 30s and early 30s and who aren't even thinking about marriage and not even thinking about kids and, and, and they're blaming it on success and career and all that. But really what it is, is a lot of it boils down to a bunch of selfishness because self is so much the focus of society nowadays. Amen. 
And here's why this matters. I'm going to iterate this again before we jump into the book of Malachi. God works through family. The natural family and the spiritual family, the church. How many know that's true? Put up the Lord's Prayer if, if, if you wouldn't mind. In Matthew chapter 6, uh, Pastor Steve a few weeks uh, touched on this, this scripture. Jesus says this, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things which you have need of when you ask. Listen to how Jesus says to pray. In this manner pray, our Father. Someone say, our Father. Come on, say it like you had some breakfast. Say, our Father. In heaven, hallowed be your name. He says, when you pray, pray our Father. You notice that our is plural? Can I preach for just a few minutes? Because in the context that Jesus is speaking of, Jewish people don't think in terms of the individual. They think in terms of collective. Meaning this, everyone belonged to a tribe in Israel. So the individual was important, but the tribe was the most important. How many know a church is a tribe? Every gift in a church, every person in a church is important. But how many of you know that, that the tribe is most important than just one individual? And in the Jewish people, naturally, like many Eastern cultures, under, uh, family was, was the priority. And as a matter of fact, I believe that's why he's saying our father. Because when he was saying it, he was literally saying, my father is your father. He's our father. And I'll never forget that um, I've been to Israel twice. And I, I saw this the first time that I went. But the second time I went in the summer of 2016, right before I got married, I went to Israel again. And how many of you have been to Israel? How many of you have had the privilege of going to Israel? Anyone? Anyone ever flown El Al, which is the Jewish airline? Okay. One person, two people, a few. Here's the thing. On most planes, they don't like you to congregate in aisles. Right? Meaning, if you're blocking the aisle too much, they, you know, after a while they ask you to take your seat. You know, if, if it's too rowdy. How many of you have ever had a, a flight attendant come and get you quick? You know those ones that will come and get you quick. Like... Well, I almost had like social anxiety on this plane because I don't know what happened, but out of nowhere, like everyone on the plane got up and was in the aisles and the stewardess just didn't care. And at first I didn't understand what was going on, but what was happening was it was an overnight flight and the sun was coming up. And so I see all of these Jewish men and a lot of them had their sons with them and they were reaching for some bags and everyone's grabbing a bag. I'm like, we're we're like six hours away from landing. What are y'all doing? Like, what's going on? Like... I'm starting to like get social anxiety. And you know, next thing I know, they're taken out. They put this thing on their head. And then, and then they take out a leather strap. I don't know if you've ever seen this. And they start wrapping it around their arm. And then I see the father wrapping it around the children's arm. And written around the leather strap is, is verses from the Torah. And then they start getting their Torah. They, they, they get their little Bible, their Torah. And every day they read a Torah portion. Amen. Even Jesus wrote, read Torah portions. The day he went to the synagogue, he, when he read from Isaiah 61, that was the reading from that, that scroll. So every day, Jewish people, and, and so we're on a plane, and next thing I know, groups of men and their sons are congregating. And I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of the, of the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall in Jerusalem. If you've ever been there, it's, 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 a, it's an experience like no other. And they, they, they pray and they move like this. And they read, you know, 
and, but, 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 but mind you, I'm an American and I'm flying to Israel. And at first I didn't realize all this. And you gotta understand, I'm starting to, at first I'm having anxiety because I'm like, why is everybody getting up? The next thing you know, I, it starts to hit me what's going on. They're praying, but what caught me off, not, not caught me off guard, caught my attention was that they were praying in groups. And I said, why do you do this? They said, when we pray together, when Jews pray together, we like to pray in groups of 10. So when Jesus gave the Lord's prayer, he actually understood the context he was speaking into. Not only do we go in our secret place and pray, but he was saying, when you, when we pray, our father, when families pray, our father, lest Jesus said, if two or three touch and agree. Jesus is demonstrating that when families pray together, I don't know if it, whether it's natural or churches, something happens. Amen. And I believe for the kingdom to be fully expressed in the earth, we have to model healthy family life, both in the home and in the church. And of course, no family is perfect. I don't believe God is putting this heavy yoke on you because he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. How many know we can't do this in our own strength? Because some of us come from families, messed up situations, and you know, but here, here's what I don't like. I don't want any of us to take a defeatist mindset that says, I'm always going to be this way, or I can never escape my dysfunction. I believe although we may never be perfect, we can seek wholeness and we can model what family looks like. Amen. Turn with me to the book of Malachi, if you would, the book of Malachi, chapter one. The Lord has been burning this book in my heart all week. And let me preface our reading with this. I don't think the book of Malachi gets enough attention. It gets attention for one category, giving. Which is important because that's a major theme and it's a major aspect of it. But I don't think the other parts of the book get the attention it deserves. Because it's a very important book. How do we know that? Because... This book is the last book that is written in the Old Testament. And after this book, another book will not be written for at least 400 years. Theologians often refer to these years as the silent years. Now, I don't believe that that means that God was speaking to no one. I think God had personal relationships with people in Israel. But God was not speaking through a major prophet again for 400 years. Meaning there wasn't a collective message that was going out. That we know of. Until John the Baptist. The book of Malachi ends with a prophecy. And we're going to get to that in a second. That lingers. For 400 years. But. There's some stuff in the book of Malachi that is important for us to see. So we're going to do the we're going to do the fastest Bible study you've ever seen. Are you ready? How many love the scriptures? The book, of, the book of Malachi is written like this. It's basically a big dispute. Where God makes a statement and Israel disputes it and then God responds. There were six disputes in the book of Malachi. And what is going on when the book of Malachi is written? It's a hundred years. Israel has now been back in the land for a hundred years from returning from Babylonian exile. The temple is rebuilt. 
but things are not going well. Someone say, not at all. Turn with me to chapter 1, verse 2. Here's the first dispute. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Listen to Israel. Here's their dispute. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? God says, I've loved you, Israel. Israel says, in what way have you loved us? Can you feel the pride? You would think that a nation that had a miraculous birth as Israel, all the amazing miracles that Israel had seen and all of its supernatural history, you would think that they would know, right? This is why I tell people all the time, you, miracles are amazing, but just because we get miracles, that's no guarantee that we'll love the Lord. Israel saw some of the greatest miracles. And God says, I love you. And, 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 and Israel says, how have you loved us? Of course, God responds. And then again, in uh, verse six, God says, a, a son honors his father and a servant, his master. If, if then I am the father, you see that he calls himself Israel's father. He sees Israel as his children. If I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where's my reverence, says the Lord of hosts to you, priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? God says, you've despised my name. And they said, in what way? Do you see that they're arguing with the Lord? They're disputing what he says. Instead of taking a posture of repentance. Amen. They're literally saying, in what way? Wait, you love us? In what? How? We've despised you? No, no, what way? Chapter 2, verse 10. Check this out. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it, it, it's long. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. Isn't this word father showing up a lot? Father and fathers. Amen. Judah has dealt treacherously and and, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign God. What happens is this, is that. Israel has fallen into idolatry. And what follows this is that literally what the men of Israel began to do is they just begin to divorce their wife for no good reason. Again, we're not, we're not talking, even in the law of Moses, there was a way in which there were, you know, allowances for divorce, but that's not what he's talking about. He's saying literally they began to fall into idolatry and they began to marry women from foreign lands who served foreign gods. And, and listen to what God says towards the end. I believe it's in uh, verse 15. He says, therefore, take heed to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously. Listen, with the wife of his youth. So something was going on with the men of Israel where they just started to decide. I want to trade in my wife. If I could just be plain. And of course, they disputed this. They disputed their guilt of idolatry and adultery. 
And then in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied you? And listen to what Israel began to say. In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or where's the God of justice? In other words, they started to say, God delights in them that do evil. What happens is they actually started to look at people who were doing evil and prospering. And they just started assuming, hey, well, I guess God blesses the evil. Let's just join in. Let's just join in with what everybody's doing. You know, it's like. So they disputed with God over sin and justice. Two more disputes. Chapter three, verse seven. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and you have not kept them. Listen to what he says. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? This is exactly when God addresses the tithe issue. He says, you've robbed me. In other words, he's saying, let's start here. Be honest. You've robbed me of worship because the tithe was worship. You know, you know, idolatry. And just about every other sin you can think of follows a worship problem. Because we are image bearers. The minute we stopped, we stopped worshiping. See, we're always worshiping. It's just a matter of what. And because they had robbed God of worship, idolatry sets in. And now it's wreaking havoc in marriages and it's wreaking havoc in society. And the last dispute. Listen. Israel got to such a place with God. Listen to what they actually said. God says in uh, verse 13 of the third chapter, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Don't you love it how they're playing dumb? Right? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we keep his ordinance? And that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. They are literally telling God, God, it's pointless to serve you. We now consider the proud blessed. You know, even David had this temptation. He said, when I saw the success of the wicked, I almost slipped because culture if we're not careful will convince us to trade the eternal things for the temporal things because sometimes it looks like wickedness is prevailing it looks like the proud are succeeding but god has shown us time and time again the wicked come to ruin and he's telling his people you have been so inundated by culture. You've lost sight of the covenant of your fathers. To the point where they said it's useless to serve God. And here we come to chapter four. The meat and potatoes of, of today. The fourth chapter well, starting in the, in the third chapter, God begins to prophesy about a messenger that's going to come. And the entire fourth chapter of the book of Malachi is a prophecy. 
Turn with me to Malachi 4, 5 through 6. These are the last words of the Old Covenant. The last words of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Hear this. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the hearts of the children to their fathers. Hear this. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. We're going to get back to that in a second. Luke chapter 1 verse 16. This, this scripture, this scripture in the book of Malachi has two implications. Because we know that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah before the Lord. Amen. But we also know that Jesus has two comings. He came once, he's going to come again. And I believe that before he comes again, the spirit of Elijah will go before him and make a way for the Lord. But it happened then and will happen again. Okay. Luke 1 speaking of John the Baptist's ministry, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You remember on the mountain of transfiguration, the three disciples that went up with him, they saw Jesus transfigured before their eyes. And who showed up that day? Moses and Elijah. Right? And it was at that moment that their eyes were opened to a greater level and they, and, and when Afterwards, they had a discussion with the Lord. Remember, they wanted to build a temple. But one of the things they also said was, when will Elijah come? Because they're, they're, they're Jewish. They've heard these prophecies read their whole life. He says, Elijah's already come. John was Elijah. Coming in the spirit of Elijah, turning the, the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Jesus spoke this out of his own mouth. Out of his own mouth. They missed it because they were literally expecting Elijah to come. And, 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 and John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. And I asked the Lord, why Elijah? You know, because Israel had so many great prophets. But if you look at Elisha's role in, in his, his mantle, you know, not only was he the one that called down fire from heaven and dealt with idolatry and all that stuff, he was also a father. God speaks to Elijah about Elisha, right? You remember the story? I love this story. He just walks by Elisha and throws his mantle on him. Isn't that cool? Elisha's just plowing and he just walks by, almost how Jesus walked by his disciples and said, come follow me. Right. But then we know the story. I'm paraphrasing going quickly. Are you guys with me towards before Elijah is taken up by the chariots in the whirlwind? He tells Elisha, stay here. See, Elijah's heart's always been towards Elisha, but now Elisha's heart is being tested because the Lord Elijah says, stay here. And what does Elisha say? No, I'm going where you go. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not letting you out of my sight because the heart of the father had already been turned to the son. But now the heart of the son had been turned to the father so much so that when 
Elisha was taken up. What did Elisha say? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. He called Elisha his father. Because fathers leave inheritance for sons. Sons inherit the work and legacy of fathers and they build on it. Oh, I'm preaching better than you responding this morning. Because if you could see what God's put in you and what God wants to do through your family. And not just in our natural families. If we could even see Christian Tabernacle as a family. I don't know about you, but Pastor Heard and other pastors here, they're not just pastors. They're like fathers in the faith to me. And when I think about everything, you see, you have a natural family, but you got to understand that there's some promises and some words and some, some things that God is doing in CT. And then if we'll be like sons coming under our fathers, not like in a, not like in a hierarchical, like, like corporate world way. I'm talking about like in a relational way where we come under our fathers in the faith and receive from them. We're being positioned. To inherit spiritual promises in this city. How many of you believe that's true? Say amen. But Elijah was a father figure. But notice he says, unless the hearts of the fathers are turned to the children and children to the fathers, the land will be cursed. Now, the thing is, is that word cursed is not the same in every text. A curse comes in many ways. That, that word right there can literally be translated in the Hebrew destruction. Destruction. God is literally saying, if the generations are not reconciled, there will be destruction that comes upon the land. Here's the powerful thing about this. Before Israel moved into the land, it was known as the land of Canaan. Is that right? God called Canaan cursed. Cursed be Canaan, right? When Israel moved in to the land of Canaan, They brought with them the blessing of the Lord. In other words, when they moved in, the land began to prosper. Because there was, because of their relationship with Yahweh and because of their covenant and because they were at times following in the way of the Lord, blessing followed, right? But what what God is telling them is this, is that because the hearts of the fathers and the children have been turned away, Basically, he's saying the land is going to return to how it was before you guys got here. Not only does, is this for the book of Malachi, it's just plain to see that this principle applies across the board. Show me any country where the family is being disintegrated and I will show you a nation within a couple of generations that will descend into chaos. Because it's just the way that God set up the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. He just, the way he he set the precedent from the very beginning, the way I'm going to change the earth and the way I'm going to move up, move in the earth is going to be through family. And that's exactly why when he set up the church, although there are gifts and offices and all that, at the end of the day, we're a family because God does things through family. Not only can, can, can we seek wholeness in our natural families, we have to have wholeness in our churches because People have got to come in to hear and see what family looks like. 
They have to see this. Amen. Someone say the hearts of the fathers to the children. I would, I would suggest to you, and, and like Pastor has already pointed out, so much of the social problems we're seeing in America, not all of them, but so many of them can be traced back to family. So many can be traced back to family. Amen. That word turn there literally means to return. I also like this. It means to recover. So let's, let's park here and let's talk about turning our hearts towards our children. Can I talk to us for, for just a few minutes? Remember, I'm talking spiritually and naturally here. Is our heart turned towards our children? I'm not asking, do you love your children? Is your heart turned towards them? Or have other things overtaken it? Can I, can I get more plain? Do they know they are more important than your career? Do they know they are more important than your business? Has life become so routine that there's a disconnect to where connection is lost? Amen? I can tell you from, you know, my time in school... What I've studied, let, let me tell you the trend in America right now. Everyone gets home from school or work and everyone retreats to their corners. Mom and dad go to their favorite Netflix show. The, parent, the kids go in the room and shut the door. When dinner's ready, they come and make a plate and they take it back to their room. We've lost the dinner table. We've lost the communion. We've lost the family time. You can tell me it's not true and your house may be an exception, but for the majority of the American. So if this isn't to you, then it's not to you. But for the majority of the America, this is the truth. I studied psychology. I know the trends. I've read the studies. Everyone is retreating because when mom and dad get home, work is so heavy. They need an outlet, right? And, and when kids get home, they're just retreating to jump on video games or jump on social media. And none of that is bad within its proper context. But what I'm saying is between parents and children, there's a disconnect that's growing and it's growing. Amen. Are we speaking the word of God over our children? Are we saying harmful things? Can I tell you what I mean? I would Starbucks is like my office. Okay. I'm in Starbucks all the time. And I overhear some of the most bizarre conversations in Starbucks. It's amazing what some people are comfortable talking out loud about. It's like, aren't you in, like, man, y'all go, you know, go to the corner. Go sit in the middle of everyone, like where, you know, there's like five empty tables. But they want to come talk right in the middle of everyone about some real, you know. And the other day, I'm working and I hear these women. And, and basically, they're blaming their kids for not achieving their career goals. That's a lot of talk I've heard from a lot of people, especially young parents. Let me say that don't ever let your kids hear you say that. Because they're not stopping you. We've just got to shift our perspective. We've got to figure out a way to get them a part of what you're building. Here's a question I want to ask. What if we all had a vision for our families? And you, we involved them in it. How many know we should all have a vision for our marriage? all have a vision for our life, but also for our family. I love when we were at our, 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 our pastor's meeting the other day, Pastor Bergs, 
explained to us how their whole life, his family would get together. And he explained to us how they did their family gatherings. I haven't told him this yet, but it stuck with me so much that I'm in the beginning stages of, you know, planning to be a father. It stuck with me so much. It inspired me that I'm going to do the same thing with my kids. I'm not going to try to control their choices in life, but as much as I can, I'm going to, I'm going to provide a vision for them. And I, I want to involve them in this vision. Because see, they can't just be told what the vision is. We've got to involve them in it. You know, something I was thinking about this week. President Trump is a very controversial person. Right? To say the least. Don't worry, I'm not talking about politics. You can relax. Now, we, he puts his foot in his mouth like two or three times a day, right? On, on Twitter. They need to take his Twitter away. But with every president, I always look for the good and the bad. Meaning, the take, you know, you, you, you see bad, but you got to look for the good, right? One, th- one of the things that I've seen that he does well is he, his kids are involved in his work. Now, a lot of people have criticized this, and I get it, because whatever, you know. But if you look at it, it's, it's actually very biblical to involve your kids in your work. So despite whatever other failures he may have, he has involved his kids into his business to such a level, anywhere he goes, they go with him. See, and if you pay attention to the reason why he acts the way he does, it's because he had a horrible relationship, or not a horrible, but a, a dysfunctional relationship with his father. That's why everything's a competition. But somewhere along the line, he decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to elevate my kids with me. And if you'll notice, he involves them in everything he does, right? Politics aside... Look at how the man involves his children in everything that he does. For good or bad, they're very much building with him. Amen? What if we had a vision for our families? Amen? Don't ever let your children hear you blaming them. Find a way to involve them. Amen. Do you lead your children spiritually? Here's a question. Are you leaving it up to the pastor? I can tell you as a youth pastor and young adult pastor for years, sometimes it's easier just to send them to children's church or youth ministry or young adults. But how many know parents, you're the first pastors in your home? You're the first pastors in your home. No, let, let me say this. No one will ever have the, the uh, spiritual authority to speak into their lives like you. Because the family is so mandated by God. So we want to keep our heart to them no matter what they do or where they go. Don't let their choices they have made that have disappointed you to cause your heart to grow cold towards them. Amen. Because see in the book of Malachi. He sets a precedent. For the children to return to the fathers. The fathers have to first turn their heart to the children. And obviously I'm talking about mothers and fathers here. In Luke chapter 15. I'm going to preach for 10 minutes before we close. Is that okay? In Luke chapter 15. The story of the prodigal son. Every time I read it, it just gets, it gets deeper and deeper with me. 
Because here you have a story where he has two sons. He has an older son and a younger son. And the younger son takes his inheritance, his birthright, and he goes and he squanders it. Amen? He takes his legacy, he takes his inheritance, and he goes and squanders it. How many know the father has every reason to be angry? All that I've built, all that I've done for you, all this inheritance, and you're just going to throw it away. And the Bible says this young man, it got real bad for him to the point where he was ending up in a pig pen. And of course, this may have been literal, but it's also a metaphor because for Israel, the pig was an unclean animal. And it always represented uncleanliness, and it also represented the Gentiles. Gentile means out of covenant. In other words, the son had left the ways of his forefathers and had went into the world and began to do things the way the Gentiles did them. Remember when Jesus was was teaching us about how to pray? He said, don't pray like the Gentiles pray. Pray like this. Right. Don't do what the Gentiles do. Do this. The reason why Jesus is saying that is because he's saying when you're in covenant with God, you do things differently. And the son had left not only his father's house, but he left. His the ways of his fathers and he left the covenant. But here's what's what's powerful is the son awakens from the from this pig pen one day. And he says, you know, I got to get back to my father's house. And the Bible says that the father saw the son from far away. How many know that like the father had every right to be angry? He could have got out that belt. He could have went after him. (laughs) Or that spoon, that wooden spoon. But the Bible says he saw him. And you know what? I I think it's because his heart was never turned away from him. See, see, sometimes we got to, you know, you got to let children do what they're going to do. Sometimes they even leave the home. Sometimes they go and do crazy stuff. But your heart can be toward them. And I think his heart was towards them because he saw them from far away. And you know what he said? He didn't say, oh, man, I'm going to give him a tongue lashing. I'm going to give him a piece. He said, prepare a feast. Go get a ring. Go get a robe. We're throwing a party. Because there's repentance that's happening. There's a turning that's happening. And the son was restored that day. And, and, and this home literally has a revival. Because here, here's a kingdom principle. And as fathers, both spiritually and naturally towards your natural children. And there are going to be children that are put into your life that are like spiritual children. God's going to put you around people that you bring into the kingdom or you help nurture them in the kingdom, right? They're going to see you like a spiritual parent or like a father figure. And if there's something we learn from Jesus himself and from this parable is that to have the father's heart, we do not punish people by withholding love from them. Religion teaches us the way you deal with people is if they do something you don't like, withhold your love. Jesus says, keep your love turned on. I say, pray for your enemies. Listen, if you've got to love and pray for your enemies, how much more your children? Don't ever let your heart get cold towards them. 
Keep it hot. Keep it sensitive. You can, you can be disappointed in their choices, but keep hope. Remember what the Lord has spoken over that child. Because here's why. If you don't believe in them, who's going to believe in them? Who's going who's gonna to call them home? We've got to keep our love turned on. Amen. And by the way, I, I don't have time, but let me tell you what the Lord also told me. That's why we've got to get the spirit of the older brother out of the church. Because when the, when the younger brother, oh, I'm about to, can I preach? For, I didn't plan to say this. But when the, when the younger brother came home, the other bro, older brother was mad and said, how are you going to let him come in? You don't, you know, all the stuff he did, you know, what, you know, what the, the father said to him, he said, chill, everything I already have is yours. He's come home. I'm telling you, you know, people wonder why sometimes we don't have a harvest It's because if God brought in some of these lost sons and daughters, unfortunately, too many church people would judge them because they're going to come in smelling like pig. They're going to come in smelling like, let me tell you this. They're going to come in having the wrong language and the wrong thinking, but we can't have the spirit of the older brother. We've got to say, thank God they've come home because God is a father. He's a father. Amen. Amen. Turning our hearts towards the children. I want to encourage you to take this to prayer this week. You know, and, and, and I know like with millennials and some of the younger ones, it's, it's easy to get frustrated. But one thing I've been telling a lot of the um, people my age and, and people who are older, the older generations is this. With the younger ones, instead of being frustrated with them, ask God to give you a heart for them. You know, I was driving through a neighborhood the other day. It was pretty rough. I was just seeing all these young men everywhere and I was just thinking... Whose hearts are turned towards them? I mean, I don't know their life. I'm not going to assume, but I know I've met enough young men to know that they're, that, that, that not a lot of hearts are turned towards so many of our young people. And we wonder why they, they're acting the way they do. It's because no one's ever given them a compelling vision to live for. Right? Powerful what happens when parents, natural and spiritual, turn their hearts towards the younger generation. Say, you know what, God? Soften our hearts. Turn our hearts towards our children. I want to leave you with these application points, if that's okay. Amen? Once again, here's the progression. Israel didn't know the love of God. Their worship was then corrupted. Infidelity and divorce became rampant. They began to condone evil. And then... Their hearts became cold and resistant. It got to the point where they said it's pointless to serve God. And God says, what are we going to do about this? Turn the hearts of the fathers back to the sons. And sons to the fathers. Because we've got to restore what's been broken. What's been lost. What's been forfeited. Ten application points. Parents to children's. Number one, we've got to seek to know the father heart of God. Amen. How many know 
naturally and spiritually. We don't know, we can't have a, the, the heart of a father until we know our, our God, our father, as a father. Amen? You know, one thing I've learned too is it doesn't matter how long you've been saved. You know, I've, I've talked to people just recently who are up in their years and age. And they were telling me, they're like, you know, I feel like I'm just getting to know him as a father. Because all their life they knew him as God. And he is God. But they didn't know the father nature of God. And it's like they're discovering him all over again. Turn your, number two, turn your heart towards your children simply by first making a decision to. Making a decision that my kids, they're, they're going to know they're more important than my career, my business, my phone. I'm going to put my phone down, right? Sometime. Number three, forgive them. Amen? Because children can do things that hurt their parents. But you've got to, we've got to lead and not wait for them. We've got to forgive them. Here's the, here's, here's the second part of that. We've also got to be willing to ask forgiveness. Because I mean, no parents aren't perfect. And I think, forgive me for saying this, and this can sound weird coming from a young person, but just hear my heart. I think sometimes parents think that they don't have to apologize because they're the parent. But if you really want to show your, your kids what strength is, show them humility and be willing to tell them, I'm sorry. Number four, seek healing and restoration for your family, yourself and your family. You know, some, sometimes we're, we're still carrying things, habits and, and dysfunction from our family. That we, How many of you have ever caught yourself doing something that your parents did that you didn't ever want to do? <laughs> and you're like, oh, man. I want to give you hope. You really can. With God, it may be a journey. It's not overnight, but God is a father and and, and, and through different avenues of the Holy Spirit can, can restore that and heal that. Amen. Number five, lead them spiritually with passion, but also with gentleness and love. Amen. Here's a big one. Spend quality time with them. We've got to get back to the dinner table. Get back to the dinner table. When you're at dinner or lunch today, put the phone away. You know, I'm, I'm going to give you an experiment just because some of you looking at me like you don't believe me. Go to lunch today and look around how many children are on their phone. Not only children, how many parents are on their phone. It's bizarre. I mean, I catch myself doing it. You know, me and my wife, sometimes we're at lunch. I'll say, okay, let's put our phones in the middle. You know, um, it's bizarre if you actually look around. It's no longer just children. I mean, people will be at a table and literally everyone's on their phone. The kids are che- checking Snapchat and the parents are checking Facebook. Because that's how they keep in touch with all their high school friends. And that's all good. But when, when you're at dinner and when you're at lunch with your children, put your phone away. When you're at home, sometimes put it away. And it, hey, it's okay. It's okay to have those Netflix shows. I like, I, I, I like watching documentaries on Netflix too. But sometimes, make it, leave that for the appropriate time. Make quality time. That's the moments when there's going to be 
a connection and an intertwining of your hearts. Amen? Number seven, get a vision for your family and involve them in it. In what way are you involving your children in your vision and legacy? Amen? Here's a big one. Almost done. Number eight, keep your family in mind when you make decisions. How many know that as husbands and wives parent and parents that we should have forfeited our right to be selfish? Of course we want to pursue our calling and everything, but and we should, but also every decision we make should be made with our, our spouse and our kids in mind. How is this going to affect them? Number number nine, keep your love turned on. And number number ten, leave a legacy. Someone say, leave a legacy. I want you to stand with me to your feet. If I could have our prayer counselors, please join us. Please don't rush off just yet because I want to pray something over all of us this morning. If you would, please just come and join join me here at the altars. Let's just lift our hands. I'm going to pray something over us and decree some things over us before Pastor Clark comes and, and, and closes. But I'm believing, you know, just today, I had two, two different people tell me that even within the matter of weeks and days, God has already started restoring. Many other people are seeing restoration in their family. And I'm, I'm believing for an acceleration. I'm looking for that to increase. Not only in our church, but in our communities and in our nation. Amen. Because I believe if, if America is going to see the spiritual renewal that, it's, that it needs to see, God's going to have to also do it in the family. Amen. He's going to do it in the family. So just would you lift your hands with me? Father, I just pray right now that you would send the spirit of reconciliation all across this nation. All across this nation, God. Like a wave, like a tidal wave beginning in churches, God, beginning in this church. God, I thank you even right now, you're turning the hearts of parents towards children. There's forgiveness being released. There's forgiveness being received. God, I pray that you're turning the hearts of children back to parents, God. God, I pray, God, for reconciliation between parents and children. Father, reconciliation between spouses and husbands. Sin, the Holy Spirit empowered to our families God we thank you for household salvations God we thank you for revival in the homes God we thank you for softening 
hearts that have been stoned, God. You told us that you will give us a heart of flesh where there has been a heart of stone, Father. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you begin to brood and move move over the hearts of families in this place. God, and I also thank you, even in this place, that you're raising up us up, even as spiritual parents to our lost neighbors and loved ones, even in our families, having a spiritual father's heart towards them, God. Draw our hearts towards them, God. In the name of Jesus, Father. In the name of Jesus.